You know, I, I recognize that today there are a lot of different uh, emotions and a lot of different feelings and, and states of mind depending on where you're coming from um, politically. And um, so I just want to just name that, you know, that just depending on where, where you're at uh, today is affecting you, you know, very differently than maybe the person sitting right next to you. And so, um, you know, I actually think that um, this passage speaks really well to where, where we are today, um, not only individually, but as a country. I mean, just recognize, you know, our, our country is pretty, pretty divided right now. Our country is, is hurting in a lot of ways, and um, there, there is a lot of division. And so, you know, I, I think the reality is, is everybody's frustrated at somebody right now. All of us are, um, not even, just, you know, politically, but just period. But I mean, I think this, you know, I think right now we, we kind of feel that, you know, we, we feel the tension. Feels like almost everybody is, we're grumbling against somebody. Um, and, you know, there, there are some who, you know, they're, they're, they're so concerned about, you know, the, the future of our, of our country that, you know, talking about civil, you know, the next civil war and that kind of thing. Um, and there are some legitimate reasons for us to be frustrated with others. There are some illegitimate reasons for us to be frustrated with others. But the question I want us and I want you to ask yourself this morning as we look at this passage and what God has to say to you is how does Jesus want to show up in your frustration with other people? How does Jesus want to show up in the middle of whatever your frustration and your shortness with other people are? The Bible so often is is very counterintuitive to what our natural minds think is how we should operate and what we should do. And I'm always personally amazed at the wisdom of the Bible, which can often be written off as, you know, archaic. And, and I think when you look at it, it it's, it's amazing the way forward it shows us. Um, the very last thing that we would really think is saying, you know, actually, if you really look at this, this is the only thing that really makes sense. And so Quite simply, what we'll see that James is saying, what God is saying to us, is, you know, that, that when the world, when your own heart and flesh is egging you on to fight and to kick and to scream, um, that what God is saying is, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And time and time again in the book of James, we see that the, the kind of real change that real faith in the real Jesus brings in real life. That's what James is doing. He's trying to bring down this oftentimes abstract, ethereal, clouds, angels floating, faith thing, and make it just very practical, tangible, and real to the point that oftentimes he seems harsh and, and too direct. But what we're seeing is what real, the real faith or what real change real faith in the real Jesus makes in real life. And what we see from this passage is the real change that the real Jesus makes in your life is that he makes you into a long-suffering person. He makes you able to endure relational brokenness for a really long time. And he shows you how to handle it and to engage it so, as we're looking at this passage this morning, James 5, 7 through 12, 
We're doing it in three sections, and um, my points are very, uh, are very short. First section is this, long. That's it, just long. Second is short. And the third is Jesus. All right, so pretty straightforward. Long, point one. Short, point two. Jesus, point three. All right, so first, long. I want us to look in this, this first section at just the, this first verse in verse five, or sorry, um, chapter five, verse seven. When James starts by saying, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So this is, this is, be patient is his kind of thesis over this whole, this whole passage. And he just explains it and illustrates it and applies it. But that's, that's the thing he's getting across. And patience, in its most general form, is the ability to not get angry when things aren't going your way. That, at its most basic form. But uh, this passage does clarify a bit for us what kind of patience we're talking about. Because if you look at the, the original language of the New Testament, there's actually two words that get used for patience. And they both mean that, that basic same thing, that the ability to not get angry and to defer anger when things aren't going your way. But one means in situations. So just some circumstance in your life isn't in your favor, and you're able to defer anger at the situation. The other is deferring anger at people who aren't treating you the way that you think they should treat you or that they should treat you. In this passage, it's actually the second that's being used. You know, because it's easy to actually read this and think, oh, I just need to be patient. Like, just, I just need to endure through whatever trial this is that I'm in, school, work, family, whatever this is. And not that that's out of what this is talking about, but this is actually speaking really directly to relationships, which so much of James is, which honestly so much of the Bible is. Again, that's one of the real, one of the, 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 the real things that, that God is constantly confronting us with is that how we interact with him is important, but that vertical interaction always gets worked out horizontally. And, and how we interact with one another tells us, you know, good or bad, um, our relationship, what we think about God, how we end up treating one another. And this is just another uh, example of that. And this word that's used here, it's, it's interesting because it's actually just two words squashed together. And, and so this word literally, for patience here, literally means long-spirited. James is saying, be long-spirited, my brothers, until the coming of the Lord. A little bit more you know, for a way to kind of understand it is be long-suffering. Don't let your spirit with other people die down too quickly because that's exactly what, that's exactly what happens so often in our relationships. When there's friction, it's like the fuse gets lit and it just starts, it's short and it either leads to an explosion or, you know, we just take the whole stick of dynamite and throw it away and we give up on the person. He's saying be long spirited. I'm going to try and move to my next page of notes. Did it. Be long spirited. Um, you know, if you're, if, you know, speaking of, of dynamite, you know, if your, if your job is to 
if it's in demolition, you know, whatever dynamite you're using to blow up rocks, you want it to have a long fuse. You don't want it to have a short fuse, stick it in the rock, and then it blow up. You need to have a long fuse in that situation. And so the same in our relationships. A long fuse. Because the reality is, is every single one of us, every time we interact, there's something, even if it's said with no ill intent, it can be received with ill intent. And all of a sudden that fuse is lit and now we're frustrated. Now we're hurt. Now we're angry. Now we've got an issue. And this is exactly what James is talking about. In those moments where the fuse gets lit, don't have a short spirit. Have a long spirit. Now, this is coming right after because he says, be, be patient, therefore. And this is coming right after uh, a passage where he's talked about basically the oppression of the rich over the poor. And, and most likely, most of the Christians that Jane was talking about were not rich. Most of them were poor. So most of them, this was a live issue for them. And they knew what it was like to be, to be oppressed by the rich. And he's saying, in light of that, be long-spirited with them. In light of those who seek to lord over their power and their money and their reputation against you, to your detriment, have a long spirit. Now, does it only apply to that? No, but I think this was just, this was a live issue for them. I think it applies in any situation where our fuse is getting lit, so to speak. Um, now, I do want to clarify this because what James is not saying is endure abuse. He's not saying just, just get kicked around like a dirt bag. This is not giving husbands, you know, permission from God to abuse their spouses. And it's not more holy for a wife that's getting abused to remain in that situation. Um, what this is talking about is, it's not saying, this is not anti-justice. Well, this is saying, don't seek vengeance. Defer your anger. Don't respond to evil with evil. This is not cutting out any sort of sense of right and wrong and, ah, oh, just if somebody's terrible, then I should just take it. Um, what this is saying is don't bite back. Don't bite back, as Paul says elsewhere, unless you end up devouring one another or you're just biting and biting and biting until all of a sudden you don't even realize there's nothing, nothing left of the relationship, nothing left of that body of believers. Um, so, but what this is calling you to do is to patiently endure relational suffering in times and instances where you are mistreated, where you are not given the benefit of the doubt. And this is, um, you know, this has been very convicting for me. Personally, so much of James has been, um, you know, I can think of, there are a couple of relationships in my life where the fuse got lit with a, another believer and it's like, I just, I just gave up. I didn't want things to explode, so I just threw the dynamite and basically said, oh, if the relationship explodes, it just ends, it ends. Um, and I've realized that there are, are at least a couple of relationships in my life where I have not been long spirit. I've not been practicing what this is calling me to do. So for you, you know, what, what are the people, the faces, the relationships where you just know 
they have done things to set me off. They have done legitimately wrong things to me. And I have either exploded on them and said, pick up the pieces, or I have just kind of slowly, silently exited that relationship. Because I think what this is, what this is calling to, what this is giving us the imagination to do is that what, what Jesus can do in those most painful relationships, in those most painful places, which is where he does his best work, resurrection out of the dead, that's actually where he wants to show up the most, if we will stick with it, if I will stick with it, if you will stick with it. So let's stick with it. Let's have long spirits. But this brings me to the second section, short, which uh, I think this section is maybe a little bit shorter than the first section. We'll see. I'm not sure. It might be the exact same length, but it's called short, even if it's not necessarily short. Short, um, after illustrating this idea of being long-spirited in the next verse with this idea of a farmer, which to most of us doesn't mean a whole lot. Back then, it would have been very formative, like, oh, yeah, a farmer and their lands and all the animals and the waiting for crops. But we get the idea. He basically says, like, what this should be like is, you know, a farmer who plants the seeds and knows that it takes time for something to grow. Um, Same as our relationships, same as situations in our life. There's a level of, of endurance that it takes. But right after that, um, in verse 9, it shows us a clear picture of what it looks like to have a short spirit versus this long, patient, long-suffering. What it sh- what a, uh, sorry, what a short spirit looks like, and then it shows us why we have that. So I, lo- I want to look at those two things in this section of what a short spirit looks like and then why we have a short spirit. So look with me in verse 9 when it says this, for what a short spirit looks like. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers. So what happens when you start getting bothered by someone else? When they start rubbing you the wrong way? What ends up happening? Well, what James calls it is grumbling, which is a great picture for what this is. It it kind of evokes the imagery of Israel in the Old Testament when they were out in the wilderness and they felt like God had just given up on them and forgotten them and he wasn't giving them the promised land yet. Now, even after all the amazing things he'd done for them, like deliver them from slavery and provide food for them, they just keep grumbling against the Lord. This kind of under-the-breath, low-grade frustration and complaining. And James says that what ends up happening is when someone hurts you, and this is, again, he's specifically talking to the household of faith, right? We can worry about people outside the church later. He's talking about right here, people sitting in this room, sitting next to you, do not grumble against one another. Um, complaining against one another. You know, of like, just, and so often, you know, this, this can come out straight to someone's face, right? But I think oftentimes this comes out behind the scenes, behind closed doors. With, when that person's not even there to defend themselves and their own reputation, all of a sudden now they're, they're being complained against and saying, oh, he's so angry, he's so forgetful, she's so loud, she's so inconsiderate, she's never happy, you know, they're a terrible parent, this and that. And now that person's not even there to stand up for themselves. And now, whether you even believe what they're saying or not, now your view of that person has been tainted. It has been diminished. You have hurt their, the image that they bear in this other person's mind and you know before too long we start sounding like an unhappy old married couple so that's maybe your litmus test of 
relationships. When you start feeling like an unhappy old married couple and start saying these things, then you know uh, you're being short. You're having a short spirit. You're having short suffering. And oftentimes this grumbling and complaining each other isn't to the other person's face or even behind their back. It's not even spoken. I mean, Jesus is clear about this. He says that if you hate your brother in your heart, it's the same as if you've murdered him. Jesus says what's going on in our hearts, in our inner person, which oftentimes is hidden from everyone around us and sometimes even ourselves, is just as important with what comes out because ultimately what comes out comes from the heart. And so I think that applies here. That if you hate your brother in your heart, it's the same as if you've murdered him. You've wished that he was no, no longer around. And this kind of, um, you know, even silent, oftentimes grumbling, it takes a toll, right? It takes a toll on relationships. It takes a toll, obviously, on the person that's maybe being complained against. But it, often, it also takes a toll on you. To, to carry that, it's, it's like, you know, drinking poison, thinking that it's going to hurt the other person. When you carry around bitterness and grudges, and, and, and many of them rightfully so, right? If you've been living in a fallen world with fallen people around you, you get hurt. And yet what we do is when we nurse those wounds, when we, when we stir up those grudges and hold on to that bitterness, it doesn't do the other person any harm. It just does you harm. It doesn't fix anything. It just makes things worse for you. This goes against the grain of of really how you were designed to live and exist. And yet, that is really where where we go, right? When we get hurt, that's where we go. And we start carrying around this hate, which is really what we're talking about. And it weighs you down. And and before you know it, your your heart is being turned from from soft flesh to, to hard stone against certain people, and then that begins to infiltrate your other relationships too. So grumbling, complaining against one another, that's what a short spirit ends up doing. That's what it looks like. But I want to move to um, why a short spirit happens. And this is interesting where James goes with this. In the rest of verse 9 is basically he says this, that you have rules and somebody broke them. You have rules, some of them very legitimate, about how someone's supposed to treat you, about how someone's supposed to live their life. And they break those rules by not living the way you think they should live or by treating you a way that you think you shouldn't be treated. James says it this way, still in verse 9, he says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So he goes, he goes to judging. He, he puts this under the category of being judgmental, which is a tough pill to swallow when you think, well, I've been hurt by this person. This still falls under that category of judgment, which I've been surprised. This is one of the main things I've learned in our study of James is how often he's bringing up, don't judge other people, that mercy triumphs over judgment. You kind of wouldn't expect that from James, who's so direct, and you almost sometimes feel like legalistic, and he's not, but he's saying, he's actually saying the exact opposite. Release other people from your rules. 
And this is really where it gets hard, right? Because really the, the source of those rules is you, right? And, and it's that, it's the sense of my will be done, my kingdom come. And so really the rule is just you, the law is you. And anyone, anytime anyone breaks that rule of you, it evokes anger, it evokes frustration and hatred. And those rules, you know, they can be anything. It can be vote my way, it can be respect me, it can, it can be don't live that way. But it all comes down to, um, to us. And judging people against basically the rule of I am the most important person, period. Even though we don't say that out loud, that's what's going on in our hearts. Or otherwise we wouldn't, as James talked about earlier, we wouldn't fight. We would never have an issue with anybody else. This is interesting also um, bringing up uh, the idea of grumbling again this, in this passage to kind of clarify a little bit for us this, this picture of, of being judgmental against others. That word there for grumble literally means to make in straights. Okay, now straights, not like straights with a GH, like a straight line, straights without the GH, which is a geographical term for when you have two bodies of water that, like two oceans that are connected by like a really, really narrow passageway. So typically between like two countries, they come together at a point, you've got a big ocean over here, big ocean over here, and then they are connected by that little thing right there. And what he's saying is that whenever you grumble, whenever you complain, what you are doing is you are squeezing other people into a narrow place. And again, that narrow place is basically that singular rule of live like I'm the most important person or else. And when we all do that, it's a recipe for disaster because we are living narrow. So what's, what's interesting is that it seems like what, J- what James is saying is don't have a short spirit, have a long spirit. Be willing to endure difficulty in relationships. And then he also goes on to say with this about not grumbling is don't have a narrow spirit, have a wide spirit. Not a narrow one that says, obey my rules, submit to me as the most important person, or else widen that so that the waters can flow freely. Being wide with one another, where it's not always me first, but where we make room for one another. And he brings up the fact that the judge is standing at the door. He says, now be careful when you do this, lest you be judged, which is also echoing Jesus' words. Be careful how you judge others because you're going to be judged by the same standard, whether you like it or not. And so what he's saying is, you're not the judge. You're not the judge. God is. He's a much better judge. He's actually the one who's really qualified to be the judge. So let him. Let him be the judge. Which brings me to the third and final section Jesus. Because time and time again, when you look at the Bible, when you just look at your own life, you you begin to realize more and more how just desperate you are, how hopeless you are in and of your own self. Um, 
before God and in your life. And we're definitely hopeless when it comes to being able to bear with one another for the long haul in a way that we actually end up loving one another and forgiving one another and bearing with one another. But I want to bring us back to the beginning of this passage to continue what James says. And he says in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers. Not period, but specifically until the coming of the Lord. Until the coming of the Lord. This is what I think James is doing. Is he's saying, listen, don't live your life like this life is all you've got to vindicate yourself. To avenge yourself. There is a righteous judge who is coming. And not only is this judge righteous, but as James goes on to say in the end of this passage, in verse 11, about how in the midst of suffering and having to endure it, you have seen and the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He's saying, don't let your fuse go out until Jesus returns. He's saying, look up to Christ. This judge who's not ruling with an iron fist, what is he doing? He's compassionate and merciful. He is saying, keep a spirit of forgiveness and humility and patience until the king of humility and forgiveness and patience returns. There's a poem uh, by Emma uh, Shrivener or Shrivener called Don't Adopt That One. So in this poem that I'm going to read to you in a second, um, she uses the metaphor of adoption to explain, as the Bible does in so many places, how God relates to us. That we orphaned ourselves and he came at great price to himself and brought us in and made his his own children, his adopted sons and daughters. So using this illustration, um, she talks about, in the very beginning, you'll hear her talk about this family of three. She's using it as a metaphor for, for God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what you're going to hear is these two voices going back and forth between the voice of God, the heart of God, and then our voice, kind of the voice of our reason and how we think. So listen to this. This is how it begins. Imagine it, the perfect family. The three of them are inseparable. Theirs is a home overflowing with laughter and love, magnetic, generous, complete, nothing missing, nothing needed. Their heartbeat is security, trust, and above all, joy. Love you, proud of you, you're the best. They don't need anything, and yet they want to give. So much love, it cannot be contained. So they make a plan, an incredible decision to bring someone in from the outside. But who will they choose? They can have anyone they want, the most attractive candidate, with a glossy, wipe clean cover, a perfect gene pool, guaranteed success. And then you'll begin to hear this other voice. Be smart. Don't spoil what you have. Don't risk what you've got. Think of your son. Play it safe. Protect him. Protect yourselves. But they keep looking. A sealed envelope. Do not open. This child will destroy you. Boxes of case notes. 
family of felons, murderers, rapists, criminals, addicts, unwilling and unable to change, genetically damaged, defiance that's off the charts. Give a home to this child and it will wreck it. It will rebel. It will refuse to recognize you. It will take your time, your money, everything you have. It will eat your food and spit it in your face. It will spurn your love and chase after others. It will sell itself to the highest bidder, then give itself away for free. This child will take all you give and still want more. It will curse you and while laughing, break your heart. But there's more. It will put your perfect family through hell. It will unleash an unthinkable nightmare. This child will kill your son if you take this child in. So, close the file. Go back to your world, the one you created. No one will think less of you. The very opposite. Protect yourself. Protect your son. But they don't. We'll take him, they say. This one, though it cost us everything. This one. This one a million times over. The child that no one wants. We will set our love upon him and we will bring him home. Or as James 5.11 says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how he is compassionate and merciful. Do you see that this is exactly what God has done for you? That he didn't have to bring you into his family. And yet he chose to do this knowing that it would mean the death of his own son so that through him, you could be his child. And Jesus Christ, your older brother, did this. Said yes to the father. Bring them into the family, knowing that it would mean that you killed him, right? It wasn't the Roman soldiers that killed him. It was you. It was your sin. It was your rejection of him. Jesus bearing the punishment of that, which the Bible says the consequence of sin is death. And he says, I will take that so that you can be brought in. And he does this with joy. He does this, as the Bible says, because he loved us. You see, God has been long-suffering with you, whether you recognize it or not. And he continues to be. And he will always be. Because if you have faith in Christ, it was not dependent on you in the first place. And it will not be dependent on you in the future. This is the amazing, upside-down, counterintuitive God that you and I would never create for ourselves and that the Bible over and over again wants to surprise you with. So this morning, will you hear this? Will you let the voice of shame, the voice of guilt, the voice of doubt silence for just a second to think, okay, maybe this is true. Maybe this is the heart of my father. And if you don't know Jesus, maybe this is the heart of this God of the Bible, which I have a lot of questions about, which I do have concerns about. And let God speak for himself. So if you're not a Christian, this is who God is. He is not narrow and exacting with you. He's wide. He's not short with you. He's, he's long. Not because he doesn't punish sin, but because he was punished for sin in your place. And what he says is, relinquish your desire to prove yourself to me. I don't need you to do that. That's the main thing that will make 
him run from you and resist you, as James says, but he gives grace to the humble and resists the proud. And if you want to know this God today, you can. He says, believe in me. That's what it takes, believe. Believe in me. And if you do know this compassionate, merciful God who would welcome you into his family at the expense of his own son, because that is his heart, then what does that make you? How does that affect how you see yourself? Not covered with shame and guilt. How does that affect how you think God sees you? How does that affect your life, your day-to-day, your moment-by-moment? I think one thing among many, which is what one of the things that James is getting at, is um, it allows you to give up on the heavy, hard work of making judgments about other people, even those who have hurt you, so that you can do exactly what God has done with you, which is be compassionate and merciful much longer than you thought possible because it is his love poured into your hearts which does that work. And as James says in verse 8, he says, you also be patient. And he says this, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. That's what you need to do. Establish your hearts, your inner person, which is, which is the place where all the decisions are made. Everything goes on. Establish, fix, shore up that foundation on this love of God, which has been shown to you through the death and resurrection of Christ. Focus on it. Remind yourself of this. Make that the base camp of your heart where you keep coming back to. Establish your hearts on this patient love of God. The cross gives you permission to do that. It calls you to do that. To establish your hearts on the the ruling and reigning Lord of compassion and mercy. So, let's let go of judgment towards one another even in those painful moments and invite the king of mercy and love into those relationships so that he can do something in them that is beyond natural, that is beyond what you could do in your own power. Amen. Let's pray. Father, anytime we open your word and look at it, we know we are talking about things about you that we know we cannot fully comprehend. God, and even in this moment, I'm, I'm struck with how inadequate my, my words are, how inadequate my thoughts are to comprehend uh, your goodness, your compassion, your mercy. How you would be the father of that poem that gives up your own son knowing that he'll be killed by the foster kid. So Father, thank you for bringing us into your family. Thank you for bringing us in by faith and by faith alone. Father, I pray for any person here today who doesn't know you. I pray that your spirit would be at work in their life, that you would draw them to to yourself, that their eyes would be open, their ears would be open, that they would trust in you. Father, I pray for all of us here who know you. God, strengthen our hearts. Help us establish our hearts on this amazing, surprising reality of your compassion and mercy and the love you have for us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.